This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor Kate Davis. Chances are you've heard of the glass ceiling, that invisible barrier for women who are trying to break through to the highest levels of leadership, whether it's the C-suite or the White House. But there's another phenomenon that a few women who do break the glass ceiling face, the glass cliff. The glass cliff is when a woman does manage to get into a leadership position, but they're brought in to turn things around during dire times, like when a company is failing, so that they have to bear the blame if things don't go well. In other words, they manage to break through the glass ceiling only to get pushed off the glass cliff. It's a phenomenon that once you're aware of it, you can find plenty of high-profile examples. Marissa Mayer, who was appointed CEO of Yahoo in 2014 when the company was struggling to compete with Google. Theresa May, who became England's prime minister in 2016 after the Brexit referendum caused economic turmoil. Jill Sotel, who was brought in as the CEO of JCPenney in 2018 after the death of malls left the company struggling to stay afloat. And many, many more. The glass cliff doesn't just impact women. When other underrepresented groups manage to make it to leadership roles, they are also often put in positions where they're set up to fail or at least face greater than average challenges. Joining me to discuss The Glass Cliff is Michelle Ryan. Michelle is a professor of social and organizational psychology at the University of Exeter. She is also the incoming director of the Global Institute of Women's Leadership at Australian National University. She, along with Alex Haslam, coined the term Glass Cliff as part of their research back in 2004. Michelle, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be here. Thanks, Kate. So first off, for context, back when you and Alex Halsam did your original research that led to the term glass cliff, what what prompted that? Is You know, this isn't a new phenomenon, but you kind of put a name to it. Could you kind of take me briefly through that original research process? Yeah, it was actually a really interesting research project, and it started in a slightly different way than most research projects start, which is maybe with theory or, you know, building on another study. Uh, Our work on the glass cliff really started from a newspaper article that was in The Times, um, the London Times, and it was talking about what happened when women broke through the glass ceiling. So they were saying there's more and more women coming into uh, the boards of directors of FTSE 100 companies. So these are the top 100 companies on the London Stock Exchange. And they were saying that as these women were breaking through the glass ceiling, what they were noticing, uh, what, what the journalist was noticing, is that this was associated with a drop in company performance. Uh, so they noted that the companies that had more women on their boards of directors actually tended to fare worse in their annual average share price. So so this was an article that was published. It was the front page of the business section of the Times. And their conclusion was that maybe corporate Britain would be better off without women on boards. So that's that's a really strong claim. And I guess it was that claim on the you know front page of a of a national newspaper that that started for us a whole line of research. So what we really wanted to do is say, well, is this claim right? You know, when women 
break through the glass ceiling? Do they wreak havoc on these companies or could there be a sort of alternative explanation? That's yeah, that's fascinating. And that's that's such a damaging conclusion, but kind of almost like an obvious conclusion, you know, of like, oh, look, you know, women are in leadership positions. The company starts doing worse. Don't put women in leadership positions. But you did you have an inkling that there was something more there? And how did you go about figuring out what what was really at play? Yeah. So so, I mean, we thought that while this might be a sort of obvious sort of conclusion to make that we thought it was much more complex than that. And one of the first things that we teach in psychology when we're teaching statistics to our undergraduates, for example, is that correlation is not causation. So that just means when you see two things that are associated with each other, it doesn't mean that one necessarily causes the other. So so one of the examples we often give is that, um, you know, if there's a fire, the more fire trucks that are there, the worse the fire is. Mm. Now, of course, it's not that the fire trucks are causing the fire to be worse. It's, of course, the other way around. The worse the fire is, the more fire trucks turn up. So using that sort of um, critique of correlation not being causation, we thought that maybe it's the reverse that's going on. So rather than women causing companies to perform badly, maybe it's the case that when companies perform badly, they actually appoint more women. And and that was absolutely what we saw when we we had a more in-depth and nuanced analysis of the data. So women were being appointed to companies when their share price dropped. And this is where we coined the phrase, the glass cliff. So the idea that these women are breaking through the glass ceiling, they're taking on really top level leadership positions on boards of directors, but they're doing so in times of crisis, when share price is low, when things are going badly. And so you can sort of get the the analogy of this sort of precarious leadership position and hence the glass cliff. And so when when you kind of figured this out and came out with this research, what was the what was the reaction? Yeah, it's really interesting because in some ways, while the the first claim was intuitive, this claim is sort of Mm counterintuitive, right? So why would you put women in these leadership positions when things are going badly? And and that opened up a whole can of worms of what's going on and what's happening. And and whether it's because it was an interesting finding in and of itself, I hope so, or whether it's because a a metaphor, a good metaphor really sort of captures a conversation, um, it, it became quite a quite a phenomenon to discuss. So people were interested in what was happening. Were there anecdotal examples that we could talk about and 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 those sorts of things. Interestingly enough, the Times that ran the, the original article didn't necessarily make the connection hmm. with, with their uh, original article, but we did get a lot of press coverage as well. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I mean, this was 2004. So it's been over 15 years since since that research and since this this term came out. And I feel like it's a pretty well-known phenomenon now. Like when you say glass cliff, most people understand that. But what's what's changed in that 15 plus years about about the glass cliff? Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, 15 years feels like a long time. It makes me feel really old okay, when you say <laughs> that you've been doing this for 15 years. So so that it, it is that's a long time for a body of work to be building on each other. But I guess on a time frame of change, if we're looking at real change on the ground, you know, changes in gender equality or changes in, you know, those sorts of things, that's quite a short time frame. So certainly in that last 15 years, we haven't seen a lot of, um, it's not like the glass cliff has disappeared and mm-hmm. it's better, 
But I guess from a research point of view, we're getting a much better understanding of, of what's going on, what's underlying it, what circumstances does it happen in. We've come up with examples and, and those sorts of things. So I think our understanding of the phenomenon is much more complex and, and it's quite a nuanced phenomenon. So it's important that we understand those nuances as well. But but it's certainly not the case that it's sort of reduced in prevalence in any sort of way. We still see examples over and over again of glass cliff positions. Yeah, and I'd love to get into to what are those some of those circumstances and, and nuances are. So, you know, kind of aside from the, the notion that women are set up to fail in a, you know, but when they get a leadership position in a time of crisis, are there other kind of beliefs about women's leadership styles that lead them to get these positions only when a company is in trouble? Or is there you know, like what else is at play that is making making it so that women are getting um, appointed to leadership positions in a time of crisis? Yeah, so I'm a social and organisational psychologist, so we tend to focus a lot on the sort of social and organisational factors. So exactly as you say, um, there's, there's lots of different contributors to, to these sorts of positions. Um, one, perhaps the most positive explanation is, is based on sort of stereotypes and stereotypes about men and women and stereotypes about leadership. And, and the idea here is that if uh, that women might have particular traits and qualities and abilities that make them particularly good at dealing with crisis. So if you think of a stereotype of a sort of average woman or women in general, uh, they seem to be sort of kind and thoughtful and good communicators, sort of tactful and, and those sorts of things, which is often in contrast to a stereotypical male uh, who might be uh, ambitious or forceful or strong or, you know, the independent, those sorts of different traits. And what our research suggests is that in times of crisis, organisations might try and lean towards more stereotypically feminine traits as being seen as necessary. So whether that's because, um, you know, we typically have men in leadership roles, so having a woman would mean something different, so trying something different, or whether it's because there's particular uh, aspects of crises that need those stereotypically feminine traits. We've certainly seen that people think that feminine traits are good in times of crisis. And we call this the think crisis, think female association, which really contrasts to what we find more generally, which is in general, we have this think manager or think leader, think male association. So, so I guess that's a kind of positive explanation for what's going on. We think women have good traits um, that make them good in times of crises. But we've also done more research that suggests that it's not quite so positive after all, that there's, there's more nuances to, to it than that. And so how does it actually play out? I mean, do, you know, in your research, have you found that um, when women are appointed to these these roles, you know, do they by and large have these traits and, and it ends up working out for the companies? Are they you know, by and large, I mean, obviously each case is different, but are they by and large set up to fail and, or they they bring the company to a successful point and then get kicked out? Like, how does it, how do, have you seen it play out? Um, there's some really interesting research that shows that, say, male CEOs 
tend to have a much longer tenure than female CEOs. So men are much uh, likely to be in for an average of seven years, whereas women are more likely to be in for two to three years. So there really is that big difference that can and in part be accounted for by women coming in in times of crisis. And you've got much more turnover in times of crisis. You're trying different things. You know, people get criticised, you know, those sorts of things. Uh, but, but there's also research that shows uh, what they call a saviour effect which is that once things turn around and once things start to look better, that so even if a woman does do well, she's sort of pushed to the side and a man often comes in to take over after that. So, mm-hmm. so this sort of saviour effect, which is interesting. But for me, I think one of the sort of psychological consequences of, of this, I, I, I guess for stereotypes and norms and ideas about women and leadership, is that we really run the risk of reinforcing these stereotypes that women aren't particularly good at leadership. So Mm. if the women that we do see in leadership are more likely to be in these risky, precarious, difficult, crisis-ridden positions, then we start to think, well, yeah, women aren't that good at leadership, right? And then it reinforces our idea that they're not very good. I think it's also the case that women, when they're in leadership roles, are in there as women. So mm. if they fail or they struggle or they do badly, we generalise that to women in general. Whereas if a man perhaps is in a leadership role and, and he doesn't do so well or it's a difficult position, no one says, oh, well, you know, men are no good at leadership. Mm. It's just him as an individual. Yeah. Um, so, so I think there's lots of potential sort of consequences there, both for the women themselves but also for sort of stereotypes and our understanding of leadership. Yeah. And I mean, if it's, you know, you only to that point, like if you only see, you know, your vision of what a normal uh, manager leader is during normal times is always a a male, then you don't you don't see a woman in a just I'm just leading a company through regular times. It's only, you know, you kind of put them in in those boxes of women are only there in times of crisis. Men are the norm and women are the exception. You know, we've been talking exclusively about women. And when we talk about the glass cliff in general, the focus of the conversation is usually around women. But this is not a phenomenon that just happens to women. It also happens to other underrepresented groups. Can you talk about how race plays into the glass cliff? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we we tended to focus on gender because the first example in the Times was a gendered one. But as we've gone on, I mean, I think a lot of what we're saying is that our stereotypes of what leadership looks like is masculine, but it's also white, it's mm-hmm. also able-bodied, it's also straight, you know, all of those sorts of things. So so actually the, the people that are either seen to be different or have different traits or the people that are set up for failure are usually the people that are not in that old boys club. And and that's, as you say, people from lots of different underrepresented groups. So we've done some work on uh, racial minorities as well. So this is, um, and and other people have done work in this area now as well. Uh, We've done this in the area of politics. So we've looked at British uh, politicians and looking at the general elections over a period of 10 years and found that the Conservative Party, so the the UK equivalent of the Republican Party, are more likely to put um, ethnic minority candidates into essentially unwinnable seats. Um, Mm. So so they'll put them up for election, but they don't get elected because they're in these unwinnable seats. They actually do the same for women as well. So, and 
black women, well, you know, they're, they're never going to be in a, in a winnable seat. But there's also been some really great research that looks at um, coaches of, of um, college basketball teams and they show that those college basketball teams that are on losing streaks are much more likely to have black coaches, for example. So there's some really interesting um, research in lots of different areas, so not just corporate kind of leadership but sporting leadership, political leadership as well, and, and it shows those sorts of different uh, group memberships can play a role. And is putting somebody, like putting a candidate in a non-winnable seat, as you say, is that is that kind of a nod of like, look, we're trying but they just weren't good enough, you know, like making a, a showing effort for inclusion that is not genuine. Yeah. I mean, I think it is that they, they want to be seen as being inclusive and representative, um, but yet maybe they don't want to go completely far. So they'll give mm-hmm. them a chance, but all the safe winnable seats are going to the, you know, the old boys club, right? Mm-hmm. So so whether that's about whether you have to sort of test your medal somewhere else first because you're a peripheral member of the club, um, of, of the party, for example, and you have to work your way in, or whether it's really a sort of maybe a slightly more cynical thing about saying, look, we tried, but, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't get in. So, you know, what what are we to do? We can't help that. But, of course, you know, if they put them to run in winnable seats, then they would be much more likely to do that. I mean, in the UK, Margaret Thatcher is a perfect example of a glass cliff, for example. So the UK's first female prime minister, she ran twice in unwinnable seats um, before she ran a third time and got elected. She was then education minister at a time of great student riots and then became prime minister uh, during a great recession as well. So she's a really classic example of of a woman that's perhaps faced Glasscliffe positions at all stages of her political career. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the same could be said um, in our, the most recent election in in the United States is there was so much talk in the uh, the Democratic Party of like, we can't risk having a woman again. Like, look how it played out for us last time. We can't risk it. You know, we, we have to go with a, a, a safe choice. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that idea of how it reinforces, you know, those, yeah, those stereotypes that are there. So I'm interested in how that has the pandemic affected this, like affect are there fewer women in leadership roles. You know, we've covered a lot about how um, women's participation in the workforce in general has gone down because of the pandemic. Is it exacerbating the, the issue of, of the glass cliff and women even making it to leadership roles to begin with? Yeah. Okay. So, so I guess if you think about that, I, I, I'm not, I'm not actually really sure. I, I haven't seen any figures on that. Um, I, I guess that that'd be relatively sort of new research to look at whether, well, I guess one, whether the pandemic is its own sort of crisis and, and therefore would it mean more women are coming in to leadership roles? Certainly there is, um, there's been a few cases, I, I guess, with sort of prominent organisations, say, in the retail industry and things like that, that have been struggling um, uh, under, you know, the pandemic who have had women appointed to their boards of directors um, or as CEOs. So I think there's a few cases that are there, but I haven't seen any systematic research looking at sort of corporate appointments during the pandemic. Mm. But I guess we could hypothesise the 
it, you know, it's it's a form of crisis. I mean, it's a health crisis and a social crisis, but it's also an economic crisis as well. And lots of organisations are struggling. So we might expect more women to be coming into leadership positions. Um, I think if we do move to a sort of political sphere, there's been some really interesting talk about the glass cliff um, or I guess women dealing with crises at a at a a sort of country government level as well. There are very few com- countries with female leaders, but those that do have female leaders, so think of um, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, Vietnam, for example, those are countries that have actually done much better in dealing with the pandemic at, at, a, at a national level, um, both in terms of um, death rates, but also in terms of um, economic sort of stability. Um, they've also recovered much better and their corporate sector has recovered much better as well. So there's been some talk about whether women are actually showing a different type of leadership in times of crisis compared to, say, the US or the UK or, or Brazil where, you know, there's a there's a very different style of leadership. Yeah, and that kind of plays back into some of those beliefs on on women's leadership styles, right? Is that women are more cautious and and take fewer risks than men and and in a, you know, global pandemic taking taking risks and not being as cautious obviously is not the best course of action. Yeah. A really interesting way of framing it. We actually do research on risk um, and, and gender differences in risk. Um, it's, it's sort of a separate line of work from the glass clip, but as you say, I think it's related. And what our research shows actually is that it isn't the case that women are risk averse. Um, it's that they take different types of risks, and there are actually more stereotypical masculine risks, but there are also more stereotypical feminine risks as well, or you know, female risks. And I think, you know, as is the case, it, it depends how you frame it, um, like perhaps the response to the pandemic. I mean, you could say that Jacinda Ardern was being cautious um, and, and being cautious with human life, for example, but you could say that she was absolutely risking the economy to do that with a with a really harsh lockdown. So, so it isn't so much about taking risks or not, but areas in which you will take risks or not. So I actually think she was conservative in her risks when it came to death toll, but actually, you know, willing to take the risk of greater economic harm in order to save people. Now, in the end, it, it turned out that a harsh lockdown was actually good for the for economics because there was a faster recovery afterwards. But I don't think that was necessarily what she was thinking at the time. So so I think it's it's maybe that women are willing to take different types of risks or prioritize different sorts of things rather than being risk averse per se. That's a fantastic way to think about it. I had never really considered it that way, but that's, yeah, it's, it's not so much avoiding all risk. It's calculating which risks are worth taking really. Yeah. And prioritizing different things, which I, which I think is really important, but actually, I I mean, I think if there's a whole lot of discussion at the moment, um, around sort of sexual harassment and violence against women and those sorts of things. And one could argue that women take more risks than men every day, whether that's just walking down the street or dealing with sexual harassment in the workplace. They're just different risks and and we might be less likely to label them as risks because they're not the sort of masculine, ambitious, sort of pushy risks that we're used to calling risks. Yeah, I mean, life as a 
a woman, life as an underrepresented um, minority in the in the country. Those are those are risky positions to be in just living your everyday life. Yeah, yeah. you're exactly right. I, I'm interested in, in since your initial research, if you've seen any industries, you know, we've talked about, you know, like the Fortune 500 companies, we've talked about politics, if there's any particular industry or companies in particular that are making some progress in removing these restraints or helping women to rise to leadership positions in non-crisis situations? Or is anybody making any progress? I know you said like 15 years is actually not that long of a time, but have, have you seen any progress? Yeah, I mean, I think there are definitely some organizations that are doing better than others. Um, and there's certainly some countries that are doing better than others, right? So um, I think when it comes to uh, leadership positions, for example, there's a number of different initiatives at sort of both national but also um, sort of organisational levels and there's a number of different approaches. I think one that's very controversial but actually is incredibly effective is, is quotas or targets. So saying actually you have to have X number of women on your boards of directors. So many of the Scandinavian countries have done that. They just say you have to have 40% of women on your boards or you'll face a fine. And they gave them a time frame to do that and they did that. Um, France and Spain are other countries that have brought that in. In the UK, we didn't have quotas but we had targets. So we had a target of 30% uh, with the spectre of a, of a quota sort of held up that if you don't do it voluntarily, then we'll we'll put a quota in. And, and actually while quotas are not particularly popular. I mean, I think people feel that they're unfair, that it's not meritocratic. Um, they do work. So they work in terms of representation. So you actually get women on boards of directors uh, or in, you know, political leadership roles, wherever you put those sort of quotas. But you also then get social change because you then have role models. You then have a, a change in, in sort of norms. You get women aspiring to leadership positions because they've got those people there. So, so I mean, I think that's one thing that works. Um, I, I think the research also shows that even if it's not quotas, I think putting in place, I think very strong mentorship programs also seems to work as well. So I think there are things that one can do, but all of that being said, it's slow. I, I mean, I think without sort of strong intervention of the type of quotas, then left to their own devices, most organisations show, show very, very slow change really. Is, is there something outside of kind of being forced to in this way with quotas or, or targets? Is there something that companies that say you're you're listening to this and, and you have, a, you know, decision making power at your company? Is there something that a company can do to to address the parity between men and women leadership positions? Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of, yeah, I mean, lots of ways in which one could do that. I think a commitment to equality um, is, is one that has to really come from top down. I, I think a lot of diversity initiatives tend to be of the tick box exercise in some ways, um, and it tends to be often... Um, a, a lot around at the lower sort of levels of tweaking things around the edges. I think there's also a lot of popularity in sort of diversity training, um, in implicit bias training or unconscious bias training and of those sorts of things um, which are not particularly effective. I think people find them useful, but I think there's very little evidence that it actually leads to change in representation. I, I mean, my personal view also as well is that attempts to fix the women approach, yeah. which is sort of 
trying to give women confidence training or negotiation training or leadership training. I think those can, but I think they often come from a good place. I mean, everyone can deal do with some more leadership training or some confidence training or things like that. But if we take a deficit model of women's abilities and say that we've got to mm-hmm. fix them, I think that often reinforces our idea that, you know, we've got to fix women and make them fit into our environments. They're not, they don't have leadership ability, so we've got to teach them how to be proper leaders instead of the realisation of saying what is it about our culture or the way that we do things that mean that women aren't confident or their negotiations are not successful or that they don't strive for leadership positions or, or become leaders. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it, right? There's so much um, rhetoric around like making empowering women and making women into this mold of a a leader, which like, you know, as we've been talking about, what is the definition of a, a leader and a successful leader? And is it a white male standard and you're trying to fit all underrepresented groups and women into this standard? Or are you changing and expanding your idea of what effective leadership is, right? Yeah, and what success looks mm-hmm. like and, and what ambition looks like. We're doing lots of work in, in this area. I mean, I think empowerment is, you know, it feels like it's the right thing to do, right? And and I think the whole lean-in mm-hmm. uh, rhetoric is very much in this ballpark. And when I talk to women after they've read that book, they love it because they do feel empowered. But my concern is, is that we're asking women to do all of the work is, is the one thing. And if we getting women to do all of this changing without systemic change, then, you know, we're telling them to lean in, but not necessarily giving them something to lean towards, right? So, or know that if they do lean in, that they'll be rewarded for that. Um, you know, so all of this empowerment of women to then come up against, you know, a glass ceiling or a glass cliff or something like that, you can do all the empowerment you want, but it's still not going to end up in great change. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, rather than fix the broken system, figure out how you can fit yourself into the broken system. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Michelle Ryan, professor of social and organizational psychology at the University of Exeter. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much, Kate. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. I also really encourage you to go back and listen to our past episodes so far this season. We've covered things like code switching, tone policing, the gender pay gap, and a lot more. If you liked this episode, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen. This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com.